Uh, Let's pray, and we'll read our passage for today. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you uh, for this time that we have uh, to gather collectively to worship you as a body, um, to study your word, to, to be challenged, encouraged, prodded along in our relationship with you. We thank you for the relationships that we have in Christ. Uh, We pray um, for this body, Lord, that you would help us to grow in unity, that we would grow in service and in love, uh, in relationship with one another. We ask, Father, uh, that your spirit uh, would bear his fruit in our lives and that we would be a congregation um, that honors you just in all things. We pray, Lord, that your hand would be upon us. May we um, just continue to be pleasing to you as a body. Lord, as we look at the seven churches in Revelation, we see uh, many scoldings, warnings, uh, corrections by you. And so, Father, we ask that as we study through these letters, that we as a body would learn from them, that we would grow closer to you, that we would be encouraged And so, Father, as we look today at this church, Philadelphia, um, their positive example to us, Lord, we ask that you would uh, encourage us, inspire us, uh, make it the passion of our hearts just to walk with you faithfully uh, in a steady fashion, day by day, um, just seeking to honor you in the small things. Uh, We are grateful, Lord, for the relationship that we have with you in Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, I do ask that you would give us ears that hear, hearts that are soft and responsive to you. We are grateful, Lord, again, for this opportunity that we have to worship you through the studying of your word. We ask that this time would be fruitful in our lives. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we begin uh, right here at verse 7. We're going to look at the church of Philadelphia. Um, 
this, this name that means brotherly love. I think it was in here that somebody shouted out a, a few weeks ago that they understand this from Philadelphia to be the city of brotherly shove, which I thought was really good. Kind of laughing about that this week. And um, as I look at this church, this is, of the seven churches, there are only two that have zero criticism, criticisms against them. This is one, uh, I think it was Smyrna was the other one, where Smyrna was heading into some very serious persecution, like, like their lives are on the line. And, and basically Christ says, stand firm, it's going to be okay, I'll take care of you. Um, th- this church is, as well, there seems to be some persecution that they're, they're facing. Uh, we'll see that they find themselves sort of in a rock in a hard place, um, and the verse that seems to be, or not seems to be, it has been on my mind all week, is Matthew 5.3, which says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and it seems to be that this church, as they're sort of uh, in a difficult place, they just have been slow and steady and persistent and keeping their eyes on the Lord, and he sees it. And he applauds them for their faithfulness. Uh, what do we know about the city of brotherly love? Um, the city was founded or uh, the name was acquired by these two guys. They were brothers. They were powerful. The one kind of gave the, the city to the other brother. And it took on the, the, the name, you know, brotherly love. Um, it was a small, small little city. It was built on a fault line. So it's as we work our way around this Roman road, we left Sardis. Now we're coming down to Philadelphia. Uh, we have one more to go next week. Um, we, we know that this city was, was built on a fault line. Uh, one historian said that the only thing about Philadelphia was that it was riddled with earthquakes, like over and over and over again. Um, in, in, in reading up on this town, I was reminded of Judy Couillers, wherever she is, somewhere. There, she's raising her hand. Um, but a few, she's like, oh, no, what did I do? And how is this like? But a few years ago, she went to, we sent her to Haiti in the, in the recovery of the earthquake. And I remember when she came back, one of the things that stood out to me was that following the earthquake in Haiti, that residents of, of Haiti, they were very uncomfortable entering buildings after the earthquake. It makes sense. And, and so in this town that had all of these earthquakes, and they had the big one I, I referenced um, last week, the earthquake of AD 17, um, it, it rocked Sardis. It rocked this whole region, destroyed it. And the Caesar at the time said, what we'll do is we're going to basically say there's no taxes in these two towns for the next five years so that they can rebuild. It was, it was really wise on his part because what it did was is it built patriotism in. It built this, these cities that were loyal to Rome, that loved Rome, um, that would do anything for Rome. But in Philadelphia, as they rebuilt, what happened is the people lived on the outside of town. They didn't really want to build in the heart of the town anymore following the earthquake. But they continued to go to the town because they had volcanic soil, which was um, just super... Uh, beneficial for for growing. Um, Their economy was based on grapes, and grapes really is wine of that time. And so their local god was the god of, uh, what is his name here or her name? Uh, Dionysus. And so 
Um, this was their economy. Um, within this section, especially as it relates to the church, this rock in a hard place. Historically, as the church grew, um, I'm trying to talk to myself here. Where do we want to start? So let's go to the cross. So Jesus is executed on the cross. Um, he's buried. He's dead. Three days later, he rises. Uh, within a, you know, a month uh, or so, the church is born at Pentecost. The church begins to spread. Um, during this time, the church, Christianity, it was really viewed as a sub-sect within Judaism. They would still worship at the temple. The Christians would still participate in the synagogues. It was really, uh, Jewish believers today just refer to, they refer to themselves as completed Jews. And that, that's biblically really what was happening. Now in AD 70, when Nero came through and he destroyed the temple and persecution began to really um, rock these religious groups, there was sort of a, a splitting out from between Judaism and Christianity, that they really became distinct from one another. But that created really some major problems for the, for the Christians. And uh, some of the problems that would have uh, surfaced from this is around the time of writing, the Caesar really wanted to know, like, there's like, okay, who's Jewish and who's not? And how do we tell? Because taxes are important. Um, there were exemptions from worshiping the Roman cult if you were Jewish. They had an exemption, so they didn't have to participate in the local things. But around this time, the Jews started saying, these guys that follow Jesus, they're not Jews. They're not a part of us. They shouldn't be entitled to these exemptions. And so the, the Christians are sort of squeezed out of their Jewish community. And then they're over, now they have no protection. And, and now they have to subject themselves to Roman worship and the, the worship of the Roman gods and paying all of the Roman taxes likened to these gods. And they didn't really want to do that. And so they were sort of like in no man's land, like how do we, how do we exist? And it was, they were getting persecution every which way. And so as they're cut out from the one group and acquiring pressure from the other group, this seems to fit the context of, of today's passage. This, this church, very Jewish. There's Jewishness, if I can say that in this passage. I mean, in, in, in verse 1, or verse 1, the first verse, it's verse 7, we see the key of David. Well, what's that? It's Jewish. Then in verse 9, we see the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and they are not. And then we skip down to verse 12, and we see this, this new Jerusalem, this, this, very, this is Jewish, something, the context is screaming that there's some tension amongst these followers of Christ and the Jewish population um, that historically we know existed within this town of Philadelphia. And so this is going to overshadow everything we read in today's passage. Overshadow, it's, it, it's going to give insight to what we read, I should say. And so we begin here, or we, uh, we get this picture of Christ. So he said to the angel, this messenger, this pastor who oversees the church in Philadelphia, uh, he who is holy, speaking of Christ, who is true, 
who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens, says this. So we see this title of Christ. This, this church seems to have a closeness of faithfulness with Christ that the other churches didn't. Um, and because of this, it seems that they get a, a, a fuller revelation, a, a, a glimpse into more of who Christ is. I say that because the whole key of David, that's not mentioned back in chapter 1. All of the other churches, there, there's an illusion or, or a distinct uh, requoting of the image that John sees in chapter 1, but there's nothing about the key of David back there. And so Jesus identifies himself with two titles, the holy, set apart, distinct from creation. All through the Old Testament, you had holy dishes, holy clothes, holy, you name it. And, and, and these were items that were separated from the rest of everything else for the use by God. Um, and so he says, I am separate, I am holy, I am distinct from my creation, I am not a part of creation. Who is true, Jesus is truth. And he has the key of David. And what do we do with this? Um, as you search this phrase, you see that it's a direct quote from Isaiah 22.22. You don't have to go there. But back in Isaiah 22.22, what we read is, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens it, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. And so there's, there's this person was given this key of David. And it, it speaks of authority. In Revelation 1.18, we do see that Jesus says that he has the keys of Hades and death. Um, and just kind of the concept of a key, I've been trying to think of the key like yesterday I had to loan to the, to the I saw them earlier, the, the window people, not the window, the mirror people. I keep calling mirrors windows today. Jim, there, I know where he sits, back there. <laughs> so like, hey, can you come in later? Like, and I'm like, well, how about I just give you a key? Have access to the church building. Getting a key to the church building doesn't really separate you because there's a lot of keys out there. Um, but I started thinking about, I used LastPass on the computer. I don't know if you know what LastPass is, but I, for, I used this, this, this website, this thingamajigger. This is very technical terms. And it's, it stores every password of every website that I access. And my, what, my passwords are so wacky. Like, I can't log into them because it's like this 30-thing chain of all of this stuff that I, I, I can't get into them. But it, to get into them, I have to have my password, the master password, my key to LastPass. And I can then access these 334 websites that have my passwords associated with them. I've trusted Anna with this password. <laughs> She's been faithful to me. <laughs> but she can't remember it. Because every time she gets locked up, she's like, hey, what's that password again? I was like, it's really simple. It's, you know, these, not, not, no compromising my security here. <laughs> yeah, password one, two, three. Dave, you got it. Now I got to go change it. Uh, <clears throat> So, so the idea is that when Jesus describes himself as the one who has the key of David, there's this Jewish identification right off the bat. 
these Christians have been sort of kicked out of the very umbrella of the religious organization that they grew up in that has protection from Rome, that has all of this stuff, that then has the power and authority over them. They're nobodies. They have nothing. We'll see that they have little power. And Jesus says, you know what? The one that's writing you is the one that has the key of David. The one that holds all of the power, all of the resources. I am not limited by anything. I have the key. This is the one who's talking to you. And he says, verse 8, I know your deeds. (laughs) Which That's a terrifying statement for God to say. I don't know. It shouldn't surprise any of us. God knows everything about you. He knows every thought, he knows every deed, he knows everything that you do. And this is one of those phrases that we should just sort of let tinker around our brains, you know? God knows all of your deeds. He knows every thought. There's nothing you can hide from him. You can hide from me. You can hide from your spouse. You can hide from you, like all sorts of stuff. But you can't hide from God. God says, I know your deeds. And in the past when he said that there's always the rut row, (laughs) here's the trouble. This church in Philadelphia, he says, I know your deeds. And there's no complaint. There's an attaboy. Hold firm. You're doing good. He says, before I've put you before an open door which no one can shut. So this God who has the key now talks about this door that's open. And this, 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 Open door which no one can shut. There, there's, there's really two viable options for what does it mean. I don't know if it's an either-or situation. I kind of think it's a, not either-or, but and, I think is the, I, I think both options could be valid and likely are valid. So one option for this open door is it's an open door for ministry. I didn't list all the verses, but I'm just going to read them to you. In Acts 14.27, it says that he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16.9, we read, a wide door for effective service has opened. 2 Corinthians 2.12, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Colossians 4.3, that God would open to us a door for the word. So throughout the New Testament, this phrase is used um, in a prayer request, in a praise, requ- uh, praise form, that, that they're asking that God would open a door or praising him for opening a door, that because he opened the door, they were able to go through the door and do effective ministry. This is a, a, there's, some, there's some strong cases that you can understand when Jesus says, I know your deeds before I, behold, I have put you before Okay, let me start over. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Uh, Another thing about Philadelphia that I didn't mention is this key, this key, this city was the key. uh, It was the entrance to the east, the whole of Asia. It it was so critical. It was a nothing city, but it it, it, it was strategic in its location because if you wanted to go anywhere to the east, you had to go through the city. It was so important that this was a city that Alexander the Great used as he was conquering the world, as he was the, the, the diaspora. Um, the beauty coming in Christ's coming is there were certain things that happened that the world was never like this. Um, we're, we're entering a season now, I think, where the world is like this again, where information can travel so quickly. But, but in the preparation for Christ, he used these pagan leaders. And so Alexander the Great, when he conquered the known world at the time, 
the first thing he said is everybody has to speak Greek. Koine Greek became the lingua franca, but I think that's French. Or no, that's Italian or Latin. Something. (laughs) The language of all. Somebody will... That wasn't in my notes. I just knew that (laughs) without really knowing. But it was the language of the people. Everybody, if you needed to trade, it was Koine Greek. Everybody spoke Koine Greek. It didn't matter if your native tongue was whatever. You had to deal and operate and deal with Koine Greek. The whole world did this. It was, it, was, it was revolutionary because the whole world could then communicate. Then the Romans came in and they built the Roman roads, these roads that we're looking at. And they built essentially freeways across the known world for their soldiers to dominate it, to create uh, Pax Romana, which I know what that means. That's the peace of Rome. So they could, they could enforce uh, safety, security, rules, regulations. And then Christ enters human history at this point when everybody speaks the same language and these roads could get the information everywhere. And Alexander the Great used Philadelphia strategically to get to that part of the world. So it was sort of the key town. If you wanted to go east, you had to go through this. Um, One writer says, totally possible for this point. Um, As the geographic gateway to the east, Philadelphia sat at the crossroads of several languages, cultures, and people groups. From an evangelistic perspective, this church had great opportunities. So when Christ says, I've opened this door for you, you might be beaten down, you might be bruised, you might be discouraged. I see you, I see your deeds, you're faithful, you're plugging along. I've opened a door and great things can happen through this tiny little powerless church. Now the other option, which I don't think is mutually exclusive, is it could be that this is the, the door to the kingdom of heaven, which I think you can make another strong case for. This is, this is a reference to the messianic kingdom, which would fit with the context between the key of David the synagogue of Satan, they say they're Jews and they're not, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, this picture of like, I have the key, I've opened a door for you. These Jews that have, this isn't anti-Semitism, Jesus is the Jew, he's the God of the Jews, he was Jewish. Most of the early church, if not all of the early church, was Jewish. He says, you've been sort of squeezed out here, you think you've been excluded from the kingdom, they say they have the kingdom, but they're mistaken. I have the key of David. I've opened up a door for you to enter into the, mess, uh, the messianic kingdom. Nobody can shut this on you. If you skip forward to Re- Revelation 4.1, as we change, as we shift um, into the next section of Revelation, what we read there is, after these things I look, this is John speaking, and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first verse, v- voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come on up here. I'm going to show you some stuff. We're transported up into heaven, but he goes through this door into the messianic kingdom. And so there's a really, really, really strong case that Jesus is encouraging this group, like, hey, I have the kings. I've opened a door for you. There are some opportunities as you're facing persecution from the Jews and the Romans. No. 
know that I'm taking care of you. Know that you haven't lost your entrance. Know that I'm the one who has the authority, not them. And as we continue through the verse, we read, because you have a little power. So we see their problem. This is a weak church. Like, not weak in a bad way. They, they, they're, they're, they're facing Rome. Who could face Rome? The, the, Jew, the Jewish establishment had authority and protection. They had squirted them out of their ranks. Rome is like, hey, we're ready to do some stuff with you since you're not under that umbrella. They didn't have a lot of power. They, they clearly could only lean on God. God was their only hope, their, their only protection, their only way out of their situation. He says, you have little power, but you've done a couple things. You've kept my word. So in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of their being sort of in between two places, they didn't compromise. They stayed faithful. They have kept his word. They've stayed faithful in the teaching. They have not denied his name. They have not denied Jesus. Jesus claimed and demonstrated that he was God. And they didn't give on this. Swindoll says this on their little power. He says, it had nothing like the riches or influences of its neighbor, Laodicea. That's a church we'll look at next week. Nor did it have the rich history and heritage like Ephesus. It had neither the great reputation of, the, of Sardis nor the fame of its faithfulness like Smyrna. Small, insignificant, poor, and often overlooked, the church in Philadelphia would have concluded that it had a small capacity for ministry. How wrong they were. Christians should never think that a big church is always an effective church. God all, often uses the limitations of individuals and churches as a platform from which to launch ambitious plans. He can do wondrous works even through the weak and foolish, the meek and humble. This is beautiful. They were faithful. Like we're, we'll, we'll see in verse 10, as this, this idea of keeping his word is expanded, it says his keep, hey, they've kept the word of my perseverance. You could also use the word steadfastness, that they were steady. That they, they weren't worried about the big show. They were just taking one step at a time, staying faithful day by day, and God says, you know what, I've opened a door for you. Ministry, I think, was opened up for this church. The kingdom of heaven was opened up for this church. And I, um, I can't tell you, like, what a reminder this is needed for, for the, the church in America. In, in the, the church in America cares about numbers. I can't tell you, like, because I have my email address, like, connected to a church, like, all the, like, I get emails every single week. Double your attendance. Double your giving. Double your pleasure. No, that's double mint gum. You know, like, that's a... <laughs> But it's like the double mint commercial gun. Like it's like the double mint gun. Like double your pleasure, double your fun, double your giving, double this, double this. Because bigger is better. And if you want to have a church that can have a, an impact on everything, you got to do all of this stuff and get big programs and big, big stuff. Because that's how you're going to make God happy. It's worldly wisdom that's totally infiltrated the church, and it's really sad. 
God cares more about our faithfulness than he does about our looking impressive in the world's eyes. Um, I, think I see in this church that God really values the small little church that plods along in faithfulness. You know, there's that song, I, it's been on the radio. I've, I was sort of critical at first, and then I came to this passage, I'm like, well, maybe I need to like readjust my attitude. That song, Dream Small. I like dreaming big. The whole song about dream small. And the more I think about it, I kind of like the, the message of this song. I can't tell you the rest of the words because my, my brain's not wired like that. But, but the idea is like just, just dream about being faithful in the little things to God. You know, last week I showed the picture from Easter of 2008. I remember coming here to Valley Center with these like big aspirations. Like, oh yeah. I remember George Farrington and his like, God bless him, you know. Like, hey, we're just going to go slow. And Rick looks at me, or not Rick, uh, George looks at me and he says, this is the next Rick Warren. I'm like, George, I'm not the next Rick Warren. I can assure you that. And I'm like, I appreciate your spirit, like all seven of us, you know. Like, and, uh, and that was seeing the explosion of, of Easter of 2008 when we doubled in size and got to a whopping you know, 20 people or whatever. I know I came here with ideas of thinking, like, what does success look like? And, and really, like, because everything's out there saying that if you, if you want to have success, it's got to be big. You've got to have programs. You've got to have this. You've got to have all this stuff. But one of the things I know that, like, my background as a SEAL, like, one of the things I've learned from the time in the team is, like, sm- small can be pretty impressive, too. Like, I didn't come from big units doing, you know, like, but, but it was always instilled that we're small, but we're a part of something bigger. It's not about us. It's about this bigger, greater mission that we're a part of. And I, and I totally think that that applies to, to the church. Like, we as a church are huge compared to Easter of 2008, but we're still a small church. Like, we are a tiny church in the scale of churches, which I'm not complaining but, but just because we're a small church, it doesn't mean that small things are happening. Like, we're a part of a huge mission, the mission of God. What is he doing globally? Um, like, th- this is why from the very day one that we have grafted into our DNA missions and attaching ourselves to missionaries that are serving around the world because it's good for us it forces us to keep our eyes out, look, out, looking outward. Like, I'm really excited. Today we prayed for Lindsey Gray. And, you know, in the last couple weeks, well, for a while, Lindsey has been, like, pleading with the church, like, not pleading with the church, pleading with some individuals, like, hey, I sure would like to have a visitor. And say, like, yeah, we'll send you a visitor sometime. Well, you know. She kept saying, hey, it would be really great. And she sent a note to Melanie. And I'm like, hey, Melanie, you really want to go? How, she said, yeah, I want to go. I'm like, how about Abigail Johnson? <laughs> it was right there. So I had a couple weeks notice, but then like last week, I'm like, hey, Abigail, what are you, like, what are you, are you serious? Are you sure about this? She's like, yeah, I want to go. I, I like, would love to go. And then on Monday, I'm calling like the prices dipped, and so we got tickets to, for them to send them, you know? And it's like, so I'm really excited. Like April of 2000, whatever year is next year, 19. <laughs> like we're sending two girls to visit our, our female pilot that we support, I told her, I'm like, what they need is an unmanned flight. And she's like, that's my specialty. And, uh, and so, 
like, we want to encourage Lindsay. We want to send people. These are two girls that were like baptized in the church, grew up in the church in many ways. And so it's exciting for me to like launch them because as like, I want you guys to go and visit, encourage our missionaries, see what they're doing, open your eyes to what God's doing globally. Like, locally, we're not, like, chasing big numbers. Like, what we want is faithfulness. We want to impact lives. And sometimes impacting life isn't, glor- like, it's not a glorious thing always. A couple weeks ago, I had the impact, you know. I, uh, I had the opportunity to do a really big thing in a very unglorious way. It was in my wheelhouse of handyman skills, which, like, I have a very small wheelhouse <laughs> of handyman. Normally, I have my phone. There's Rick is my phone friend and Daniel, wherever Daniel is. They're my two phone friends for handyman stuff. But I see it, please. Somebody in the church needed a toilet changed out. I go, I can't call those two guys. They taught me how to change toilet. I know how to change toilet. And then, uh, so I end up changing a toilet. There's nothing really glorious about changing the toilet. Like, it's a stinky mess. It's like it's water that you don't know where, well, I mean, actually, you do know where it's been, and that makes it worse. <laughs> Go in there, and it's like, God, I'm doing big things for you right now, Lord. And we had one friend that said, oh, he's like, this is just like the biblical thing by the one who dips his hand in the bowl, betrays the Lord. I'm like, no, it wasn't like that at all. Like, I didn't. But there are opportunities for us to serve and to honor him. And I love that, like, Henry and Karen are, like, getting up the helping hands ministry. There's this time, like, this whole, because stuff comes up not as we want it to come up. There are times when somebody, like, needs help. And so they're going to organize like a group of people within the, the church to, to be like our, our, our response team to minister to those in need. And so I'm really excited about it. And some of this stuff is not big. It's not big stuff. Like something will come up that it'll be in your wheelhouse and you'll have the opportunity to say, Lord, I'm going to go do this for you. I don't need any glory. I don't, it's not a big deal, but it's a huge deal. And, and this church is... is God is saying, add a boy or add a girl. Like, I see your deeds. You're, you're, not, you're not off the Richter scale of doing like big glorious stuff church-wise by human perspectives, but in my book, you're doing huge things. And I've opened a door for you and nobody else can open it. Nobody else can shut it. I see your faithfulness. I see your steadiness. You've remained true to my word, which I think speaks like, to me is another, we go book, book at a time through the Bible, which it, it would be like we could get way more of a show if we just did topical and they could just focus on trendy stuff that we want to talk about. But we're saying, no, Lord, this is your word to us, so we're going to handle it a book at a time and we're going to go through and we're going to allow you to speak to us as you've laid it out. And sometimes we cover stuff that I would never, ever choose. But my desire is to be faithful to him and to his word. And it's the only way that I know how to do it is to allow him to speak to us. Verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. 
This is interesting. It speaks to the tension that the church has with Judaism in this town. This church, which is basically being forced externally like the Jews of the time are trying to get them to bow to their feet. They're forcing it because they have all of the power, all of the authority, and Jesus who stands there, saying, I have the key of David. This synagogue of Satan, which is the second time in Revelation that he's used this phrase, these people who claim to be Jews, but they're not. They're not of him. They're not his people. They will bow at your feet. And they will do this. And in their doing this, they will see that I love you. This is powerful. John MacArthur, if we don't need a further explanation, he says bowing at someone's feet depicts abject total defeat and submission. I think of Philippians 2.10 where we, you know, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. And somewhere in there in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 when it speaks of that we'll be caught up in heaven and meet Jesus and it says that where he is I will be and it makes me wonder if the church is caught up with Jesus and they're bowing to Jesus that they're right there. I don't know. There's a whole lot that we just don't know. The, the, the point of this and the purpose of this is, is for the church in Philadelphia to know this, this, this town of brotherly love, to know that the Almighty loves them deeply and that the world will know that he does. And he says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, or you could say steadfastness, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is the part that I have like a lot of things in my mind trying to figure out how to... um, The one thing that I have in my mind is this is like... Is it the three little bears or the, the porridge? Is that the right story? I so mix up my stories. The porridge that was just right? Or is that Little Red Riding Hood? That's not... What? Goldilocks, that's the one. See, I like, I don't know these stories. Like, <laughs> all I'm thinking about is oatmeal. And it's just right, that story. <laughs> I see this church, they're the one that got it just right. David Jeremiah says this, like Smyrna, in Philadelphia, uh, like Smyrna, Philadelphia had no word of condemnation. This church had right doctrine and right living going hand in hand. Where doctrine is present without love, it is legalism. Where love is present without doctrine, it is humanism. This church was faithful. And in the midst of verse 10, there's this speaking of something that's really, really, really bad. It seems to be that what he's referencing is, when we get to chapter 4, Really, chapter 6 through chapter 19, there's some horrible, horrific judgments that are coming to the world. At the very first message, I gave a disclaimer from the vantage point that I am speaking from. There are brothers that I have in Christ that hold different views than my own, but I am limited and just, it's, it's too big of, uh, to present all of them. This, isn't a, this is the way I understand it. It seems to be that Chapters 6 through 19 are dealing with the 70th week of Daniel. And don't worry if I'm losing you right now. We're going to go to Daniel, and we're going to learn about the 70 weeks of Daniel. But the 70th week seems to deal with the Great Tribulation or the Tribulational period where the world is basically um, is going to face God's wrath. 
And it seems that what's being said here, he said, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so it seems by this word from, that as this period is about to get unleashed on the world, God tells his church, I'm going to keep you from it. And those that come from the theological position that I come from, we, this is where the, what we would refer to as the pre-tribulational um, rapture. We believe that the church as a whole is taken off of the earth so that it doesn't go through this period. We, we hold this with very loose hands. We, we, we don't, um, it's not to make us angry Christians, to make us, you know, weld our swords and battle with other Christians. Um, Walvard said as, as far as the Philippian, Philadelphian church was concerned, the rapture of his church was pre- presented to him as an imminent hope. Um, it's definitely not a slam dunk. If you're like the pre-trib person looking for like, I'm looking for the slam dunk just to kind of tell all the other guys that they're wrong. You're not going to get it here. This word for, from could be used in the sense that, that you could be preserved while going through it. It's the very exact same word that John, Jesus uses in John 17, 15, where he says about to keep them from the evil one. You know, they're in the world, but not of the world. And so protect them from the evil one as they are going through trials. Whatever view you hold, certainly there is no promise that you will not go through tribulation as a Christian. And so we're going to touch more on this, but it seems to me that there's this promise that this church isn't going to go through the tribulational period. And you think, well, they're all dead by this point. Well, that's true. And some of us say, well, that's why Philippians 4.17 says the dead in Christ will rise first and be raptured with him and they're they, they, they are, they're avoiding it. Uh, the, the global picture of the church, because as he who has ear to let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So I think that there's a promise here to the local church that Christ is coming back and he's going to take his church, his followers, out so they don't have to go through this, this period of testing. That's all the time we have. We'll be, co- we'll be covering this in more detail later. Um, verse 11 says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So he says, hold fast. Hold, hold ground. What, what, are, what have they done? He says, I know your deeds, so keep doing what you're doing. He said, you've kept my word, so keep holding God's word. He says, you have not denied my name in verse 8, so don't keep staying true to Jesus' name. Verse 10 again, he says, you have kept the word of my perseverance or steadfastness, so stay faithful. Keep doing the little things. He hasn't come back yet, and what we turn to is 2 Peter 3.9, where it says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some has, have counted slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but to come to repentance. And so in that whole section, they're making fun of him. Oh, I thought Jesus was coming back. He hasn't come back, and... Here we are slaughtering you, and they're told, like, the thing that's holding God back from initiating his plan is that he really desires all people to come to repentance. And so in his plan, he's working something that's beyond our pay grade. And so we just need to trust him. Then he said, he who overcomes, 
I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. I will write his name. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven from my God in my new name. It's limited by time with this church, but, but the Jewishness of this, I can't help but to see like the outline of Revelation within this church. Um, if you'll remember back at Revelation 119, John had seen this big, huge revelation of, of Jesus, this huge image of him. And then we're told that he was commanded, therefore write the things which you have seen, speaking of this image of Christ, Then he says, and the things which are, which is known as these two chapters dealing with the churches. And then he says, and the things which will take place after these things. So when we we see this outline of this unfolding of of, um, its prophecy that sort of um, God's wrath is, is mixed into here. And when we look at this section, most understand, many, I would say most, those in my theological camp understand chapter 4, verse 1, as this, this is pictured, this image of the church being caught up to heaven. Chapters 4 and 5 are this image, in, this, this scene that takes place in heaven um, for John to see. And then into chapter 6, the scene goes back to earth and we see all of the judgments. And then as we go to the very end of Revelation, if you want to turn with me over to Revelation chapter 21, So you get through all of the judgments. And then at the very end, chapter 21, really as a whole, but I'm just going to read a little uh, little snippet just to show us. Then in verse 21, verse 1, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. I mean, that's a bummer. I'd like to see and I, I'm sorry, it's just a conscious flow of thought there. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And the reason we read this, there's this image of the, the, the old heavens and the old earth passing away, this, this picture of the new heavens, this, this new city descending And as we look at our passage back at Revelation chapter 3, he says that as this city comes down, there would be pillars. You think, why pillars? Pillars were important. To have your name on there, that that indicated a lot of, uh, it, it, it puts you in a special place. Pillars were also important because when you, when you go to these locations, like in Turkey, and you see these old towns, from all of the earthquakes, when the earthquakes happen and everything falls down, what remains? The pillars. They all, the, the pillars are there in a lot of these locations. Um, Aiken says this, to be a pillar of Christ puts the believer in a position of absolute and complete security. No disruption, disturbance, or disaster will ever separate us from our Savior. And so hope is given to this church. We're given the same hope, Romans 8, 38, and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which 
is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's, it's, there's hope. So verse 13 we read, as we always read, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so what do I take away from these churches? First, if you don't have Christ, you need Christ. Throughout the scriptures, we're told that, that it, back in Genesis chapter 3, this plan was initiated after sin entered the world that, Christ, that God the Father would send his son and that he would make a way for us to get back into relationship with God. And so we're told in the New Testament, we see that Christ came, he lived a perfect life. As Scott prayed earlier, that the wrath of God was placed on him and he absorbed the punishment that was due all sin and God stands to us and says, if you want forgiveness, it's yours. You just have to receive it by faith. Hebrews tells us that once you've received it, that your conscience is made clean, that there's not new sacrifices needed over and over and over again. The men's Bible study on Saturday mornings, we've been going through 1 John, and yesterday we talked about, he says, little children, I want you to remember that your sins have been forgiven. This is so critical. If you're in Christ, know that Christ's penalty on the cross, it was paid for. You're forgiven. Not to be done over and over again. Stop beating yourself up. Accept the forgiveness. This was a hard lesson for me to learn. And as we receive this forgiveness, just be faithful to him. Don't worry about doing big things. Like, do big things. Like, where do you work? What circles do you, do you swim in? Live for Christ faithfully. Allow him to do the work in you. And Father, we do thank you. Lord, we thank you for the example of this little church. It's, it's on one end, it, it, uh, it seems like to do glorious things for you, we often feel like it has to be about doing big, splashy things. Sometimes it's just folding laundry. Sometimes it's just helping somebody change a toilet. Sometimes it's giving somebody a hug. Sometimes it's just sitting there with somebody who's going through a difficult time. And so, God, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to, to truly sense your spirit in our lives, that we would hear his voice, his leading, that we would be willing to be used by you Lord, we live in a culture that is that we're getting uh, further and further from the Christian era. And so we really are strangers in this world. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us as a church to figure out what um, loving you and loving others looks like in our context. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage, give us the strength, Give us just the purity of heart and mind and soul to walk with you faithfully, Lord, in our daily lives. We are grateful for the work that you are doing, have done, and will do in our fellowship. We ask that you would help us to remain faithful to you all the days of our life. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.